When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. If we look back about a hundred years, most universities in this country were closed to many people. Women couldn't attend many institutions, African Americans couldn't attend many institutions, and other minorities were also excluded. There were a few pioneers, a few people who got in, but it wasn't because of the benign and tolerant viewpoints of university presidents and administrators. It was actually the hard work, amazing sacrifice and courage of especially African-American students who really challenged American higher education and made it into what it is today, the best thing this country has to offer to the world in some views. Stephen Bradley is professor at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. In his book, Upending the Ivory Tower, Civil Rights, Black Power, and the Ivy League, he explains the progressive efforts of black people at eight elite universities during the post-war era to not only desegregate campuses, but turn this process of desegregation into one that's integration and into what it is today. He also talks about the idea of decolonizing knowledge or changing the curriculum to include a true account of what has constituted the human past, the human present, and will constitute the human future. Welcome to Think About It. I'm here in conversation today with Professor Stephen Bradley, who is Associate Professor and the Chair of African American Studies at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. First of all, thank you so much for being on the show today, Professor. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Why I wanted to talk to you is because I've I've just finished this gripping account. The book had just come out, and you've written a couple of books on the history of student activism and the important transformative role that especially black students have played in transforming higher education for the better. The book that I just finished, your book is Upending the Ivory Tower, Civil Rights, Black Power, and the Ivy League. And you provide something of a corrective to a kind of standard history of how we arrived where we are today. And if you can give me a little bit of this history, but before we get there, a lot of your work is going to be read through the lens of the present moment, of what's happening on campuses. And you've written about this, and you've talked about this, and you went to the University of Missouri, you were Mm -hmm. in Ferguson two years ago. So in some ways, I want to get back to that ultimately, but if we start there... What's happening on today's campuses and what motivated you to write these books to investigate this prehistory that hadn't been as well known? Right. I think one of the things that's happening is young people are finding themselves in a moment where they're trying to make sense of all of the systems that affect them. One of those systems, of course, is, I guess, law enforcement. So we saw how that played out in Ferguson. And so young people, you know, uh, oftentimes fearing for their lives you know, put out a cry and hue about the way that they were treated by law enforcement. That's part of it. But there's other things, for instance, on campus, at these predominantly white institutions, young people, African-Americans often feel as if they are marginalized in, in many ways. And they're made to feel, by some students, made to feel as though they don't belong and that resources aren't there for their, you know, for their advancement. And so, you know, they protest, they push back. I think what made this possible, though, is the same thing that made it possible in the 1960s, and that is there's this outside social movement that's occurring that leads onto campus, which allows for a certain kind of courage, a certain kind of boldness that may or may not have been existent before then. So 
at this very moment, Seton Hall students calling themselves Concern 44. They're in negotiations with their administration and other students for various reasons have been pushing against their administrations, trying to get more black faculty members, more black students deal with issues of diversity across the board. And, and part of what you're looking at is that the, the, what's happening in the culture at large, social mm -hmm. movements, protest mm -hmm. movements, movements for justice and freedom, inform and kind of reflect what the students are then doing. And the book you've just written is kind of a particular history that illustrates a lot of this, which is the mm -hmm. Ivy League and the presence of African-American students who a hundred some years ago were admitted under different names. And you'd really bring up the whole history of that, which is about maybe a 120 year history, really, of some presence that's even tangible. Right. And right. you start quite early. Why did you focus on these super elite institutions, the kind of jewels of American higher ed to do this yeah. case study? Well, you know, part of it is I view these institutions and I think many other people do. I view these institutions as some of the most American institutions. I mean, these institutions have been around since largely before there was an official nation. So before there was a constitution, there was a Harvard University and several of the peer institutions. And so in that way, the people from these institutions helped to construct the nation by way of the constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the League of Nations and the UN charters. All of these things are the work of people who are affiliated, who were affiliated with Ivy League institutions. If that's the case, then I think these institutions kind of represent the best and the worst of America in a lot of ways. And so the American narrative, the popular American narrative is always one of progress, always one of the story ends well. But if you're an historian, then you understand that, that maybe things don't always end well. Maybe things aren't always always positive. So if you're talking about America, then you have to deal with the good, the bad, and the ugly. If these institutions are representative, most representative of America, then we have to dig into those things. And that means delving into the experience of, of black students, faculty, and staff on these campuses. And it wasn't always pretty. And what did you find? You've basically written a couple of case studies of different mm -hmm. institutions because students also comported themselves differently, expected different things. But what you just said what were they driven by? As a historian, you said you may be a little more skeptical about this narrative of inevitable progress. They mm -hmm. saw themselves in what way in this American story? Yeah. So these young people, these young people, whether it be the early desegregators is what I call them. These were the people that came before World War II or the people who came in the decades after World War II. They saw themselves as representatives of the race. They saw themselves as freedom fighters. They saw themselves as, as people who could uplift the race, use their privilege as students to, to help out with the larger idea of freedom in the black community. Now, not every student came onto campus thinking these things. And that's one of the things that I try to at least make a note to in the book is that not everybody was a, an activist. And some people were actually opponents of the activism that some black students took up. And so there were some conservative black students on campus and that sort of thing. But by and large, people were sympathetic to the ideas of increasing black enrollment, of getting black faculty members, of including black studies in the curriculum. And part of the reason they did this was they felt a certain kind of pressure outside, from outside of campus to represent the race on campus, to represent the issues of black people, uh, the black masses on campus. That's quite a bit of pressure, but I think they handled it well. You also described that they couldn't escape the lived realities of America. So you described the cases of women at Cornell, so African-American mm -hmm. women students who were not given housing but required to be on campus. Then it was difficult, more expensive. So in some ways, it was very tangible things in the beginning, actually housing, accommodation, access to parts of the university. So whether they were at Princeton would have been much later finals clubs or sort of social organizations. So the line wasn't so clear between what's in the university and then you arrive there as a black student. Great. You enrolled. You can do your studies. But then they suddenly encountered, probably not suddenly to them, these hurdles that went into the university directly. Absolutely. And thank you for the question. That's one of the most nuanced questions I've received yet. 
what we're talking about is the difference between desegregation and integration. So these institutions were were liberal in the sense that seven out of the eight institutions before the 1940s allowed black students to attend. That's a good thing. But once on campus, these students were not treated especially well. And so, as you mentioned, out at Cornell University, which was the first of the Ivy League institutions to be co-educational, they had a requirement that all female students were to stay on campus. When they met ladies, they met white students, that's what they meant. And so black women had to find accommodations off campus to stay. It's not a huge deal, except for it costs money for them to catch the trolley up the hill to campus, that when they went to study to the library to get the materials that their professor said they should get, all of their peers had gotten them first because they had to be on the train getting up the hill, the trolley getting up the hill. These are just small examples of things. But but I think more what we speak to is this idea that there is a severe kind of isolation that these students felt once enrolled in these universities. So from Jay Saunders Redding at Brown University, whose friend ended up dropping out and committing suicide, to the students at Cornell University who would create Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity so that they could feel safe and study together and work towards a network. That was all necessary, but it was very difficult. John Hope Franklin at Harvard talked about just not a day going by that he didn't recognize his skin color because somebody reminded him of it, whether it be the students or the faculty telling darky jokes in, in the classrooms or, or the town itself. Who then became one of the most distinguished historians and served, you point out in the book, on a presidential commission or helped out. Yeah. But to go back to this point you just made, so the difference, because I think it's really important for people to understand what these words mean. You said there's a difference between desegregation, allowing students to attend, and then integration, which means much more than just saying, hey, you're here now, come to class. Right. So can you say a little bit, what was the attitude? You said there was a liberal attitude. They essentially desegregated their schools before being required by law to do so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right. And so the issue is this, that to an institution that was created and designed for white students to succeed and this sort of thing, you finally let black students in. The first black student graduates from the Ivy League maybe in 1828 something along those lines. But these institutions really didn't let black students in until the 20th century, the early 20th century. These students, they couldn't participate in the dances, they couldn't oftentimes eat in the same areas, and then they were mistreated frequently by students in class and by professors. So this made it difficult for them to just live life. And so they talk about these small slights. Today we call them microaggressions, but just the idea that every day something would happen, being called by the other black student in the entire university's name, being you know, refused entrance into whatever eating hall it is and, and all of these different sorts of things, that's a lot for students to be dealing with and trying to make grades. That's why I thought it was fascinating that these early desegregators oftentimes were Phi Beta Kappa and graduated with honors and those in the professional schools, like in the law schools, would work on the law reviews. That's very impressive to consider they were going through all of these different things. And so here in America, we celebrate desegregation when we say, oh, we had the first black president, we have the first this and the first that. But the truth is there's a large difference between black people being able to assist in decision making, assist in the function and the culture of an institution, and simply black people being present. You mentioned, and there's a quote from W.E.B. Du Bois, who says he was at but not off Harvard, which echoes a bit of this Christian idea, I'm in but not mm-hmm. off the world, there's a kind of distance. But he did not mean this in a productive sense, you point out. so, And you actually just identified two different things. Today, students are allowed to go to all the dining halls, but being called by the name of the other minority student right. in the room still happens. So sometimes we'll get back to yeah. that sort of what still happens today. So what did Du Bois experience, as you said, excelled in his studies, an incredible, oh. a mind that transcends most other generations. And yet he didn't even feel he was part of that institution. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so here is one of the, and let's be clear about this, one of the sharpest minds in the 20th century it happens to be somebody that very few people at Harvard spoke to him while he was 
enrolled in school. He had the opportunity to work with maybe one or two professors who, who really would meet him on his intellectual level and try to place him where he belonged. I think he realized that in Cambridge, there was very few places where he could feel comfortable. He realized that on campus, there were very few places where he could feel comfortable. He, like so many others, couldn't stay on campus. And so these were the things that he had to deal with while in school. He wasn't allowed to be in the glee club. He wasn't, you know, all of these kinds of things were terribly frustrating to somebody who was obviously intellectually capable of outdoing most of his peers. And so much of what happens in the university is actually outside of the classroom in these kind of casual conversations where you have dinner, you talk with people, your peers, because you're actually practicing, testing mm -hmm. ideas, learning a lot outside of the formal structure. So yeah. you've written about the founding of black fraternities. And so if someone like Du Bois is walking around and really doesn't easily find a connection, where right. do they turn? What did the students do, these desegregation students, as you call them? Yeah. What do they do to yeah. actually make it in these institutions? Well, they have to form their own kind of safety groups. I can't think of a better way to put it. These are safety groups that they can go be themselves for just a moment. They can go be themselves. They can talk about and commiserate about the things that happened to them and celebrate the good things that happened with them. That's a good thing. So they formed study groups. They formed things like fraternities and sororities and that sort of thing. But essentially what they had to do is create a presence and identity for themselves. In the early years, it was more about, I guess, this kind of safety at Cornell creating Alpha Phi Alpha. But in later years, it was about presence, establishing a black presence on campus. So students at Columbia would form the Students Afro-American Society, and at other places they'd form similar kinds of groups to where they could at least let their hair down for a, a brief moment during the day and not feel so strange. Yeah. And we'll get back to this because, as you know, this language of safe spaces is yes. bandied about in the press. I actually think it's a pretty serious misunderstanding of what that means. Yes. But if we're going from the 20s and 30s to the 40s and 50s, and you say there's different strategies and with students are, so they're shifting a bit from mm -hmm. having to make it, having to represent yep. their background, the race, excel mm -hmm. on every level because it's actually made harder for them. Yes. And then in the 40s and 50s, you have a few more students. You go through the numbers. So two questions. Why are there more students being admitted? And then how do they actually relate on campus when they're not the only one anymore, but there's a few more? Yeah, good questions. Yeah, and so part of the reasons I think you see more students during that particular period has to do with the war itself, with World War II. It's pretty difficult to make the argument, like logically make the argument that we're going off to save Jewish people from annihilation. You know, Jewish people, by way of their birth, are problematic to white supremacists in Germany. It's hard to make the argument that we're going to save those people yet not allow black people to attend these institutions. And so you see a few more African-Americans have the ability to trickle into these institutions during the 1940s. There was a change throughout the nation in terms of desegregation. So whether it be baseball or football or these kinds of things, some of these things started to fall in the Supreme Court. You had these court cases that worked towards desegregation. So some of it was the mood of the nation and the impossibility of, of holding up this logic that somehow black people were inferior. That couldn't be true. We saw black people fight in the war. We saw you know, incredibly intelligent and brave black people doing things throughout that period. As we go towards the 1950s, one of the things that you see that starts to influence people is the arrival of the modern civil rights movement. And that is one of the things that we talk about frequently these days on college campuses is this idea of white privilege and the awareness that some white people never realized they were white before. Well, the, the modern civil, <laughs> civil rights... It's good that 2018 people are being yeah. made aware yeah. that actually there's such a thing as being white. Yeah, okay. yeah, I, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. It's good. And it's so, good. That's progress, I, is, right? That's good. Progress, <laughs> progress. You take it when you can get it, yes. And so, but this was the idea in the 50s, you start to see these very bold moves towards desegregation that black people were making, this push for resources. And so whether it be a bus boycott, which, uh, you know, King would lead or whatever it was, you would see the schools themselves, these young people trying to desegregate these high schools and secondary schools. 
those moves pricked the conscious of some liberal white administrators in, in ways that it hadn't worked before. I guess something about seeing young people be beaten and killed, seeing you know people being totally mistreated for wanting to be American, pricked the consciousness of some of these liberal administrators. And so in the case of a Princeton University, Princeton didn't admit black students until World War II, and it was largely because of World War II. The university participated in the Navy V-12 program, which allowed for naval officers in training to take classes at universities, and Princeton participated in that. Well, some of the Navy candidates in training happened to be black, and they showed up on Princeton's campus, and that was, these were the first students to actually enroll officially at Princeton University in the 1940s. And so you can't go back from there. So, and so, so there are big yeah. social movements around it. You actually talk about Paul Robeson and his brother. Can you give us that case for a moment? Because it illustrates the struggle of one of the major yeah. American heroes, a brilliant star in our firmament. What's yeah. his story? Because he grew up near the town of Princeton. Yes, he grew up in Princeton proper. And his father was one of the most important black ministers in town. He had been a pastor of a church. And Robeson's family was well known for its intelligence and class. Ministers typically in the black community have had maybe more access than other members of the community in terms of relationships with the white community. Well, when Drew Robinson, William Drew Robinson, Paul Robinson's brother, went to make application to Princeton University, Woodrow Wilson denied it outright. And this was problematic in the sense that Robeson's father was well known. And so he made an appeal to Wilson, who, who said, no, this is not the right place for black people to attend. Paul Robeson never, never, never forgot that. And he ended up going to Rutgers University in New Jersey, where he wasn't good enough to get into Princeton, but he became valedictorian of his class. Uh, he graduated with honors. He became a Walter Camp All-American. And yeah. football. And yeah, then he went to Columbia Law School and he acted yes. on Broadway. Yes. And then he makes yes. me feel like I've done nothing in my life. <laughs> yes, 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 so, yes. And so by the time he was 30, you know, he was doing all of these things. All of these the different things. That's right. Yeah. And one thing you also point out, but Princeton, of course, had black people on campus, which was a oh, lot yeah. of people worked there. And you actually talk about students yeah. whose parents were working at Princeton in Great. the eating clubs or as porters or in some ways or as even just maids. And so their children went mm. while Wilson in the 20s said, this is not the right place for black yeah. students. Yeah. So this is, th thank you for that. And thank you for the close read. Here's the idea that here these black people are serving white people. This wasn't unique to Princeton. So this happened at all of the institutions, but Princeton was especially noteworthy because of Many of the sons of the Confederacy went to Princeton, and everybody knew it to be that kind of institution where people didn't favor black people. Princeton had been a place where somebody, a student had turned in a black person on campus for violating the Fugitive Slave Act. And so later on, when these eating clubs at Princeton needed somebody to clean up, needed somebody to wash clothes and that sort of thing, you'd have black people doing these services to cook. The children of those maids, porters, and butlers would sometimes be on campus, and they could see all of what campus life is, all of what university is supposed to be, all of what freedom is in their minds, and not access it. And so when they eventually could access it, it was a terribly strange irony that they could go to the institution, but they couldn't, they couldn't join the eating clubs that their parents worked at. They still weren't good enough to be part of or to be a Princeton man or, or a Harvard man or a Yale man and, and this sort of thing. And so, so that's, in a way, there's a certain kind of trauma that goes along with that. And these students still excelled, but it's difficult to make a way when you know that you're only getting part of the services. What you just said is really important, that you could think, well, it's the Ivy League, so few people get in. Why wouldn't we integrate the military, education, transportation, hotels, et cetera, et cetera, public schools? But what you're saying is there was a, an implication that if you weren't here, you weren't quite good enough. You didn't make it. Mm -hmm. So the implication, which was a much more serious one for African-Americans, that these institutions saying, you can't make it here. You can't get yeah. in here. So they had to 
doubly prove themselves and then prove mm-hmm. it for the entire race. So your book, I think, is not a study of seven or eight institutions, but it's about America's attitude yeah. toward achievement and what's possible. Yeah. Yes. Yes. No, I think you're absolutely right. And so what does it take for black people to be fully human? And I think that's what I was trying to get at it in the book, that black people, the struggle for freedom for black people wasn't just in the fields of the South and wasn't part of the urban areas that Martin Luther King was marching in or the Birminghams and, and these kinds of things, that black people, particularly those who would attend Ivy League institutions had to face what scholars have called Jim Crow North, that they had to face these issues in a way that could be harmful to their experience. And many of the black students who graduated had really, really difficult times ever coming back to campus, ever dealing with campus again because of these things. It was difficult reading the experiences of some of these black students who one student talked about urine urine being poured on a black student on his way to class. I can't imagine going to take an exam and and something like this happening to me. I there's no way on earth I would be able to come back from, you know, a situation like this or just not go into a sheer rage. Everybody has to feel the rage now. How do you manage that? And so these are the things that people had to achieve at the same time that they were taking up these classes and their ability to overcome these things is a testament to the dynamism of black people. But also what I try to slide into the book is that these black people who are in the Ivy League, these most American institutions, were the most American of people. That is, whatever spirits of rugged individualism, whatever spirits of resilience and this sort of thing, they featured that. They featured that. They work to collectively become better and to think about others. That's what the ideal of America is supposed to be. But you have this minority of young people actually doing it. When you go into the 60s, you describe how it shifts a bit from black Mm -hmm. students finding safe spaces community to actually asserting their presence. When you just described, it's unimaginable what kind of emotions must go through a student who's being maligned and bullied and harassed Mm -hmm. on the way to take an exam. And mm-hmm. not taking anybody else's spot because students don't want them around. So what happens in the 60s? There's a shift. And you said it picks up through the civil rights yeah. movement in society. Yeah. And I think that it's an all around shift throughout black America. One of the things that I speak about in the book is something that's been written about quite a bit. It's this process of negrescence, this idea of becoming black, of gaining a black consciousness that occurred during the mid 1960s. And black students fully aware of what was happening off of campus, see what's happening. They could see the long, hot summers of 64, 65, 66, 67, all the way to 68. They could see the uprisings that were occurring in these urban areas. They could see the mistreatment of black people who were trying to cross bridges so that they could register to vote, have the right to vote. And for them, this was too much. You can write letters and try to morally persuade people that you too are human, that you can you could try to turn the other cheek and all of those kinds of things. But by the mid-1960s, black students came in and they weren't grateful for the opportunity to be among the elite white people at these institutions. They weren't necessarily happy or giddy, but rather they felt that they belonged there. And furthermore, that they were going to take advantage of everything the university had to offer, and they were going to demand the full treatment of righteousness. So what we today call sort of unapologetically black, right? So you that, got it. That wasn't the word probably 1965. Nope. The other kids who were there, it's not that they all got in on merit, because these other kids got in because most of their dads had gone to Princeton, Harvard, Yale, Cornell, Columbia, Dartmouth, because most of them were legacy admits. Yes. So in some ways, yes. the whole this is also where these institutions are changing into something else. You will ultimately have women admitted. But so, so they're picking up what's happening in society at large. And what do they do then when they say, we're going to be here? This is very important. We're not going to be grateful. We're not going to yeah. feel, oh, I'm the one admitted student and I have to behave yeah. in a particular way. But they actually a bit in your face about it. So what happens on campus then? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, so I think some of the things that they saw off campus, they brought onto campus. And so some of the the militant blackness that they saw off campus in groups like the Panthers, the Revolutionary Action Movement, the, you know, various groups, SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, they see the kinds of campaigns that they're waging in the North 
and throughout the nation in general, the North and the West. And they they can't understand why we can't push any further on these campuses. One of the things that they push for is we need to find a better way of recruiting black students. And so they push institutions towards recruiting more black students. This is difficult for the Ivy League because of something that you just talked about. The Ivy League was incredibly homogeneous, not just in that it was white. Most American universities were white. That wasn't it. The Ivy League got its students a strong 25, 35% of the students were the sons of alumni. Those who weren't sons of alumni had come from all of these preparatory schools that Neil Gorsuch and Red uh, Kavanaugh <laughs> and all those kinds of pieces, you know, all of those people attended these schools, these St. Paul's, these... Exeter's, uh, Andover's, uh, right. <laughs> all of those. And so these were the students who made up these institutions. And so here were black students who couldn't get into those pre, we'll call them pre-Ivy institutions, right. coming to Ivy institutions from very good black schools and recognizing that, look, I'm just as smart as anybody else. And as a result, I want more black students. And so we're going to have to reform the recruitment efforts. So they argued for black recruiters. We're going to have to create space for ourselves. That is, we the same way that every one of these buildings is a testament to white civilization, we want our own El Malik El Shabazz Center, Malcolm X Center, as they do at, at Dartmouth College. This is remarkable to me, I think, because this is what we're stepping into is culture. So some of the policies change as far as the university actually recruiting black students in the mid-1960s. And that's when you start to see just a real spike in recruitment. And let me but ask that, you something here yeah. about these students. It's, and it's a really kind of naive question and kind of not a great question at all. But these are students enrolled in these institutions. This is an incredible, a priceless opportunity for everybody in these institutions. But they're risking a lot. So what motivates them to say, we're going to transform these places rather than say, get your degree, study hard, get out and change the world afterwards. Wait. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for that question. I think part of it was the zeitgeist of the moment where you see other black youth risking their lives, literally risking their lives. Meredith March from Memphis to Jackson, the Edmund Pettus Bridge. You see these young people actually fighting for freedom. These young people who come to these institutions want to be part of that. In fact, I think they're pressured to do so in some ways, that here you all are at Harvard, Yale, Princeton. You have the best opportunities of all of us. Don't forget about us back here in the neighborhoods. And sometimes it was a kind reminder. Sometimes it was, in, in some ways, a hurtful reminder. I'm thinking about somebody who wrote something called A Song to My Brother at Dartmouth, where they say, you know, yeah, you're up there eating the enemy's food, you know, thinking his thoughts, trying to act rational and this kind of thing, while black people are suffering on the streets. And, and, and I so, think you talk yeah. about the song and you also say, and the accusation yeah. is you're enrolled at Dartmouth, but your soul is being corrupted. You're actually yeah. losing your blackness in a way, yeah. which is the point, pride in one's mm -hmm. identity. Mm -hmm. They're saying you're not even just not owning blackness. You're actually so compromised that you're kind of you're losing your soul entirely. Yes. So there's yes. pressure from the outside, you're saying, that they're picking up on this. And oh, and so for these students, there's a certain kind of pressure that I have to display my blackness. I have to display my blackness. I have to push further into the way of freedom because if I don't, I'll be ostracized and marginalized back in my community. I talk about it in terms of double marginalization. That is, because of their race, they didn't fit in on campus in many ways, but also because of their privilege and their ability to attend Ivy League institutions, they had a certain kind of something to prove to the rest of the community. And that's, that's a lot psychologically to be dealing with. And earlier you said, you know, that in 2018, people are learning there's such a thing as whiteness. So mm -hmm. these black students are expressing pride in being black. How do the white students respond? And how do the white oh. administrators respond? And their responses are very different. I know this. You, yes. looked at, you looked at different responses to different incidents. But generally, do you think, what is the response by people thinking our institutions are being challenged mm -hmm. to change? Yeah. So uh, I think in some ways, this is the most natural thing. Many of the white people at these institutions thought, my goodness, what's happening that these black students are, are acting in such a way? Shouldn't they be happy they're here and, and that sort of thing? 
because it always made sense to them that, you know, we are the most liberal and here we have allowed black students to come on campus and now they're demanding more and, and they were seeing cultural shifts. Here's the idea off campus. There was a kind of, how do you explain it? Uh, I guess there was a cultural shift off campus as well that America was taking on the cultural rhythm of blackness in many ways. So from the way that people talk to each other to everybody slapping each other five to everybody doing these kinds of things, on campus, some of the radical white students who were also trying to prove that they were down would support these black students in a lot of different ways. Some of the more conservative students thought just go to class, dude. Why are you dealing with all of this? And, you know, why why do you have to talk about blackness all the time? The black students themselves always wondered, like, I wish I didn't have to talk about blackness all the time. I wish I didn't have to deal with this all the time, but it's something that I have to do. So there was a number of different reactions, I think, in terms of protest and the demonstrations that black students leveled on campuses. You saw different reactions from different groups. So much of it depend on the leadership of these institutions as well. So at Columbia University, there was a relatively conservative president who, when students protested, his initial thought was, let's just call the police and beat them out of the buildings that they occupied. The idea of students having a say at all, that was anathema to these administrators who grew up with this idea of in loco parentis, the idea that the university was supposed to be the parent, Young people, you come here, be quiet and learn and get your degree and go. That's not what young people, and I'm not talking about just young black people, that's not what young people wanted to do in the 60s. The university was supposed to be a place to challenge ideas and that sort of thing. And the students actually brought challenging ideas to campus, which mm -hmm. in today's debate, 50 years later, the entire mm -hmm. conservative punditry says all we want is challenging, troublesome, offensive ideas. You're, yeah. you're talking about African-American students who brought troublesome, offensive, yes. difficult ideas to yes. campus for about 80 years, from, so let's say, yeah. 1900 to 1980 or something. Yeah. And they did a second thing. They challenged the curriculum and said, this is a myopic, narrowly constructed. We yeah. want black studies. We want yep. to understand how the world functions, not just how one civilization yeah. dominates the world. So actually, you could put your entire book and say, this is what every conservative should celebrate and defend. This was when the university got its impetus to say, let's have difficult conversations with difficult ideas. Well, we need you on the circuit. <laughs> Devil's advocate, because as yeah. you know, none of these people, none of these people who oh, are no. saying, I'm upset that these students don't want offensive ideas would have supported any of this. Oh, not clearly not. Clearly not. <laughs> and some of the people that are leading the league, your Alan Keyes, these kinds of people, Ward Connerly, all of these kinds of people, Thomas Souls, you know, they hate the idea that these young people are pushing for these ideas and challenging ideas, challenging culture. What you said is just so right. This idea that, that black students were going to push for, in the Ivy League, starting at Yale, push for black studies in the curriculum, they saw themselves as part of this decolonization movement that was occurring around the world. On the continent of Africa, these various nations decolonizing finally and getting their independence. This was the idea that they were going to decolonize knowledge at these most American institutions where there, there was nothing at all to indicate that black people had ever been there before or had ever contributed anything to society or the world. I'm talking about from the statues to the names on the building to the curriculum. The fact that they would push to insert black people and blackness into the curriculum was an effort of decolonization. And, and it was troublesome to even the most liberal white people who believed in what they thought was equality and that sort of thing. And so that's one of the things I really enjoyed in the book is looking at the people that we celebrate in history, in the field of history and everything else. We celebrate these good liberal people, but they pushed against this idea of, of black studies. So these students really persisted against administrators. And then there's a bit of a sort of the year 1969, you have all these institutions suddenly starting, it looks like overnight, all mm -hmm. 50 years ago next year, saying Afro-American studies, African studies, Africana studies, the word is invented mm -hmm. then. And so mm -hmm. at least they're giving them a bit of a space and say, okay, there's black studies. And what you're describing, this is actually quite powerful for a lot of other students as well. Mm -hmm. so, so it's mm -hmm. an effective way to actually do something. So 
there's a moment of opening, let's say, for the moment, or are they just given a little tiny building and saying, okay, you're going to be over here and we're going to keep the curriculum the same? Yeah, and so I think this is part of it. It'd be different if black studies weren't so popular at the moment. So now we've already talked about how few black students there were actually admitted to these schools, but these classes stayed packed and it wasn't always black students in the classes. It was largely white students in the classes who wanted to know about, who wanted to learn about a different culture that existed within the United States. So in that way, they did a service and enriched the curriculums of these institutions. In another way, they pushed forward and advanced student power in a way that no other students had done before. See, black studies is the first field of study on a university campus that students actually protested for. Nobody protested for physics or, or anything like that. This was the first one. This would give way to women's and gender studies and Chicano, Chicana studies and Asian, Asian American studies and this sort of thing. They would be in the vanguard, these black students would. But there would be another part of it that I think is, is important is this push for student power. So the way that they approached black studies was the idea that we want to be able to hire and tenure faculty members, which was just so far outside of the ideas of what a student should be able to do on campus. And to me, this was another fascinating part of the story. I thought it was, when I was back in graduate school and things like this, I thought that was the greatest idea ever. And then now that I'm a professor, I, you know. How do you feel about it now? So when you were at Missouri, you thought I should be on the committee to appoint the next historian. And now you think, let, let, hold, not so fast. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, I know a little more maybe than you do. Yeah. And uh, I need to live with this colleague for the next 40 years. Exactly, exactly. And so, but the fact that students actually won this power, like they actually won this power to do this is incredible to me. But that push for student power bled into other things. And so the reason why these student governments get these senates where they can speak to trustees and things like this, this is largely because of the pushes that these black students made. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I've done this research once. I, for some other reason, researched when the university senates were really organized and founded. They're all in the late 60s, all mm -hmm. directly in response or to preempt student protests. Mm -hmm. So you the, got it. the best functioning governance structures in American universities at the mm -hmm. Michigans and Stanfords, et cetera, they're being created at that moment mm -hmm. to realize students have a voice. It will not go away. And what you're saying in your book, it's the right argument for America. It's for mm -hmm. freedom, for justice. So, And then when you look back, so it's 50 years later, is the Ivy League better or worse off for having gone through this transformation? You would oh, think it's yeah. better, right? Did we have... Black studies yeah, I, I think so. We can take great pride in the black studies units that exist, these institutions, some great units. Cornell has a, a wonderful the Africana Studies and Research Center out there. It was wonderful. Princeton has a good unit out there, Harvard as well. And all of these institutions have wonderful programs and units and centers. But there's one thing that I didn't get a chance to go into so much, but should be mentioned, is this idea of a brain drain in a way that many of these Ivy League institutions were able to get the top scholars in the black community. These top scholars, had they not been, <laughs> had they not been, you know, grabbed up by some of these elite, predominantly white institutions, would have been working at HBCUs. And so, in this way, this is the blowback. I guess, of achievement, of desegregation in a lot of ways. So you think about Charles V. Hamilton, who was the co-author of the book Black Power with Stokely Carmichael or Kwame Touré. He had worked at Roosevelt University, which wasn't an HBCU, but it was a predominantly black institution in Chicago. Those students needed Hamilton. The work that he did with them, they needed him. Columbia University, because they can afford to hire any professor they want, they say, oh, okay, so this protest that you all leveled in 68 and 69 was about black power. How about we hire Mr. Black Power here to establish our program? And he comes to Columbia University to work with very few black students. Eric Holder ended up coming around that time and, and several other students. But, but there's a certain kind of blowback that occurs. You asked, is the Ivy League better? I would say so, because all of these diversity initiatives, all of these 
these programs, these ethnic studies programs, these women's and gender studies programs, they happened because of this moment 50 years ago and earlier. I just came from Princeton, not more than a week ago, and I got a chance to be inside of Toni Morrison Hall. This is the idea. This is the idea. Yeah, to me, I think my whole mind was blown. Students pushed for that. It wasn't liberal administrators. It wasn't the institution itself that thought this would be a good idea to do this. Now, they had centuries to do this. It took students to push for these kinds of things. And so so in that way, yes, the Ivy League is better. Do they admit black students in a way that makes it possible for the poorest of black students or the people who are intelligent but just haven't had breaks? No, I don't think I don't think, you know, they're they're the best at that. But I also don't think many universities are. But these institutions are on notice that black students and we saw this in 2014 and 15. The black students will once again rise up and protest against these institutions. Can you say something about this current moment? So you've talked a bit about this and written about this. And I know you've, you know, you went to Missouri and you, you were in Ferguson doing you yeah. know, the reactions to the not guilty verdict. But yeah. can you talk a little bit about this? Are we in the similar moment where students actually are saying these institutions aren't quite working for us and they could do better? Or is this another one where... They should be grateful. They should be quiet. They should put up with a few offensive ideas here and there and toughen up and not. And mm-hmm. So this is the conversation to me seems so strangely reminiscent of a conversation that you actually pull out in the book that people want to forget because they want to say, oh, everybody improved and everything got better and yeah. it happened on its own. Yeah. Here again is that progress narrative. And dude, all of the racism was back there in the 60s. Like everybody's equal now. Well, OK, here's the deal, particularly after Mike Brown was laid in the streets for, you know, four and a half hours after Trayvon Martin and Rakia Boyd and all these different people had faced these untimely deaths. Young people started to realize that we're not that far from these people who lost their lives. So I think they started pushing against some things, but also recognizing that on campus, no things weren't working well for them. So they were facing these slights, small things slight. Sometimes it was under the radar. Sometimes it was blatant, being called out of your name and these kinds of things. Well, students were smart enough to realize that it's it's part of a larger system. And so rather than protesting to get a student kicked out because they called you a name, you would protest to get more black faculty and staff on campus rather than crying about and just complaining about the fact that we feel neglected and isolated. They said, well, why Why can't we have more African-American and other counselors of color in the psychological services? Why, for instance, are all these buildings named after people who weren't necessarily good for American freedom? And why can't we change the names on these buildings? And so the idea that these students would protest, oh, it provoked such a reaction from the American right. Oh, my goodness. You would have thought that something really wrong happened in the world that these young people fought for inclusion. They were upset that that here these students are trying to change history and, and that sort of thing by changing the names of the buildings. At Brown University, they just uh, changed the name of one building. At Princeton, of course, they changed names. At Yale, they did. <laughs> Let's be clear about this. Somebody named these buildings once upon a time. It's okay if somebody comes along and changes the name down the road. There's nothing that says that this has to be forever. But But... In the minds of some people, they want to make America great again. There was a great period where... We have the president saying, you know, where is it going to end? Are you going to rename Washington, D.C.? And in some ways, even this is an important question and a conversation to have, right? So students are forcing this conversation. and And necessarily so, though. I think here's the idea is if we are so married to the past that we can't progress then we shall wither away. Like that will be our fate. We shall wither away. So these young people, I don't count them as dumb. I don't count them as sensitive. I don't count them as snowflakes or anything like that. I don't see it that way. In America, if you are pinched, you should be allowed to say, ouch. I think that that's a, that is a human right. Like that is a human right. And so these students are reacting as humans should react. And some people don't like the idea of everybody being able to be human, fully human. And so so I say rock and roll students, keep it up. Now, don't get me wrong. This is wildly annoying. 
because, you know, when, when students decide that they're upset about something and, you know, it's disruptive, it's, you know, and it's very difficult to keep moving when they want to shut down a class, they want to shut down a street, they want to, that's disruptive and we get it. We definitely get it. Would I tell them to stop? I'm not the one to tell them to stop. Who I would tell to stop is these institutions and these systems stop disfranchising people, stop impeding the progress of people. That's who I would tell to stop. I'm going to ask you one final question. I really like what you're saying to the students. Keep it up. It is annoying. Short of violence, it's very important. It's actually, we owe students, African-American students, a huge debt in this country for having been so brave and courageous. And then what should they read and study? So when you have students mm-hmm. right now coming to university, because some of, you know, there are huge debates about whether the, the university could be transformed or is it inherently neoliberal, corporate, and it's never going to change. So there's no, you have to do some other kind of radical pedagogy outside, which I respect as an argument. But what should they be reading? Who should they be listening to? Who should they t- talk about? Right on. Right on. Good question. I think that they do need to read about Adam Smith. So if they have complaints with capitalism. They need to read Adam Smith and Das Kapital. When learning about slavery, they need to learn about some of these early people who defended slavery and those who who opposed slavery. I think that's important. Current thinkers, I think they need to get into Ibram Kendi's stamp from the beginning. I think they need to do that. I think reading books like The New Jim Crow and other kinds of works, read about Ella Baker, they need to read about these kinds of people who you wouldn't have placed leadership on. You wouldn't have placed American on. You wouldn't have described them as that. That allows them to go certain places. I like the idea of reading about decolonization, reading about imperialism, and challenging these notions and learning these systems. Like that's, that's what the university owes these students is the idea to examine these systems in terms of education This is important. The pedagogy of the oppressed, they need to look into these kinds of things, but also look into why are people trying to control public education in this way? Why why are people trying to privatize public education? What do they win from these kinds of things? And so I'm going to get you when you have a minute to email me a list of these books. (laughs) I know many of these books, but by no means have I exhausted my need to educate myself. So I'll give you some of those. And then, you know, Professor Bradley, I just want to congratulate you. I think it is so important to have a corrective history of who in this country is responsible for social and political change, that it wasn't a bunch of white university presidents and sort of Mm -hmm. liberal people, but actually students who risked just about everything Yes. to get us to a better place. So so that's I think your books are really tributes to these kinds of people. And as you said, very difficult stories as well. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you so much for covering these kinds of things. And for me, this was a big pleasure. Thanks for the read. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And I'll have you on the podcast when you come up with your next book. <laughs> All right. I can't wait. <laughs> okay. Give me a little minute, though. <laughs> okay. All right.